0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at several scripture passages together today. Uh, There is an outline provided for you, if that's helpful, on the back of the bulletin. Also, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll get one to you. The ushers will come up and let you have one there. While they're doing that, just to bring you up to speed, um, we are on part four of a series that doing on the topic of depression what the Bible says about depression if you have missed any or part of the first three sermons uh, hopefully we can have those available to you if you would like those either up on the web or if you want a hard copy or disc we can order one for you just to get caught up so this is part four um One thing that we've talked about regarding depression, especially early on in the introduction, is this is considered, depression is considered one of the most dominant, common, universal maladies that people suffer with. And we also agreed it's highly complex and diverse in how it manifests itself because people are complex, having been made in God's image and then complicated with sin. So when you're talking about depression, talking about a very difficult, comprehensive, topic coupled with what I just said is the fact that things have been diluted and made a wee bit muddy from the influence of the secular world's opinion on a definition of depression what its diagnosis are what its causes are what the solution is to deal with it so that's kind of the legwork we spent the last three weeks addressing Uh, so you can find all that in sermon part one part two and part three Uh, today we'll do part four Maybe part five next week, and that might bring it to a conclusion. Uh, so maybe five parts. So if I don't answer all of your questions today, just hold on. I don't need an email from you. Wait till next week, and see if we address it then. Like I said, it's very complex situation, very sensitive too. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was telling the elders at our elder meeting this week that in the three sermons I've preached on depression, I've got more feedback, more of an overwhelming Uh, response from people in terms of feedback than I have of any series I've done or any topic I've preached on in seven years here at GBF. And what I'm hearing for the most part is the same is that thank you so much for preaching on this issue, addressing on this issue, dealing with it uh, from a biblical perspective because there were times in my life where I had to struggle and battle with depression or it's ministering to me right now. That's the common thing and I keep hearing. So uh, I thank God that he, the Spirit of God prompted me to address this issue this summer, and he's given us uh, several weeks to do it. In terms of the complexity of it, I did remind you, I think, in week two, sermon two, that the great preacher of a century ago, or half a century ago, generation ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the great expositor, did 21 Sundays of sermons on depression. That would make me depressed. Therefore, I'm going to cut it short at five. And then, not leave it there, but we're going to have a resolution and a full biblical solution of how do you deal with depression as a Bible-believing Christian. That's where we're headed. So, there is resolution as we're shooting towards a goal. Okay, I want to give you a pop quiz. I was going to say an oral pop quiz, but I don't want you to say the answer out loud. Answer it in your head, so don't say anything. And it's, these are just two summary review questions to see, do you understand anything at all what I've been saying for three weeks? <laughs> so these two questions will indicate whether you do or not. They're kind of big picture questions. Again, don't answer out loud. Question number one is, is it sinful to be depressed? It's a yes or no question. Well, I guess technically it's not, uh, because the answer is not yes or no. The the biblical answer is it depends. And we talked a lot about that last week when we talked about the causes of depression. It can be sinful to be depressed, and it could also be a situation where someone is genuinely distressed or depressed. They are not in sin. We're going to see some examples from Scripture. We already talked about Matthew 26 where it says that Jesus was highly distressed and appropriately one English translation said he uses the word depressed. And Jesus never sinned. So, uh, is it sinful to be depressed? The answer is, it depends. Just like, is it sinful to get angry? The answer is, it depends. You can have sinful anger or righteous indignation, which is not sinful at all. So we've spent three weeks talking about that. When you're talking about a topic like this, there are all kinds of qualifications to statements that we're making. So got to sort it all out. Question number two on your quiz is, are people born with depression? Again, another yes or no question. And I would say clearly from Scripture and everything we've looked at that the answer is emphatically no. People are not born with depression. That's like saying, are people born with anger? Are people born with, and you go the gamut of emotions. Um, so we talked about that, and that had to do a lot with the causes of depression that we discussed last week, as we con- contrasted biblical causes versus causes articulated by the so called professionals in the secular, atheistic, Darwinian, humanistic world that dominates so-called science and dominates so-called psychology and even the medical field with their evolutionary worldview, that a human being is not made in the image of God as the highest of God's creation, but rather is just the byproduct of another animal that developed over time and nothing more than a a machine. So those are two important diagnostic questions. By way of review, I do want to give you my summary definition And I'll give it to you one more time with actually an added one little phrase to it that I didn't give you the first time. So when we're talking about depression, what I'm talking about is one, two, three, four, five, just five little bullet points. Intense sadness, grief or distress. Or to be deeply troubled in mind. How you're thinking. Or emotionally distraught. So it has to do with your thinking. It has to do with your emotions. Or to be overcome with hopelessness and loss of joy. And we're going to camp out on that topic in the next two weeks. And then here's the last one that I added as I was gleaning through the Psalms. To be troubled in soul or in spirit. To be troubled in soul. It's kind of interesting as you read some of the Psalms and how poetic and Deep and personal, they are, and you got the psalmist. He's arguing with his soul, duking it out with his soul. He's arguing with himself based on his distraught condition. He is depressed. So that's where I got that last component of the definition. So let's go ahead now and look at our handout and just a quick review. We are going to actually address point five today, and then hopefully next week we'll finish up with six and seven. Uh, What we've been talking about in depression, our first point was the Bible talks about depression. And we showed all over the place, didn't even touch the surface, uh, examples of people who had depression were depressed. And the point is, to take away from that, the takeaway for the Christian is that the Bible is is sufficient to deal with this issue. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient. As a matter of fact, the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, deals with depression throughout that entire book, giving examples of people who were depressed, writing about their depression, expressing their thoughts to God on paper, preserved for us by the Holy Spirit so that we can relate to it. So really, Psalms is a compendium of sorts on depression from a biblical point of view. Then also, the whole book of Job, 42 chapters, is God's book to us, a book on depression and how to deal with depression in this life from God's vantage point. Uh, so the Bible is sufficient to deal with the common maladies of people. So that was point number one, the Bible talks about depression. Point number two, we said biblical words for depression. And the very important point there was uh, that depression was not a sufficient term, not a technical term, it's a generic term, not a, it's an English word as a matter of fact, used just very recently from the early 1900s to diagnose something, really a label, and it's just not a helpful label. So we dug into the Scriptures to see where there were examples of people having depression and look at what words they used, the biblical writers, because we want to get back to biblical language when dealing with the problems of life. We've got to preserve biblical terms, biblical phrases, the biblical language. Absolutely essential to give us precision to see What God would have us do. And so right there I've listed 30 of the words that I mentioned two weeks ago. I gave you 50 that day just from Psalm chapter 1 to verse 69. Couldn't finish the book of Psalms. There were so many words. So when somebody comes up and says, Pastor, I'm depressed. That is not sufficient for me to give a diagnosis. Figure out what the cause was and also recommend a solution. Requires a sit down conversation to examine what's going on and get behind that word depression. What do you mean you are depressed? And getting back to biblical terminology. And therein lies the answer to dealing with a malady from God's point of view using His words. So biblical words for depression, I listed those. Uh, a summary point to take away from that. Clearly all these big biblical examples and biblical words show us that depression is a biblical problem. As a result, there is a biblical solution. If something is a biblical problem, then God offers a biblical solution every time. But on the importance of preserving biblical terminology, last week I gave the example of ADD. That is not a helpful uh, acronym to diagnose or investigate somebody's problem. That's one that the world came up with, and it's generic, and it lacks precision, doesn't get to the heart of the matter. It's a behavioral moniker that somebody affixed to things that they saw in somebody's life. But the Bible deals with somebody that we would call that has ADD based on the manifestation of their behavior, and Scripture addresses that. And one of the characteristics we talked about was the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, among other things. So I don't say that ADD doesn't exist, but I choose to examine it from biblical terminology uh, go to 1 Corinthians 2 to accentuate before I summarize verses uh, point three and 4 of how important it is for us as Christians to use biblical terminology when talking about things. I will be honest with you. When people talk to me about certain things, especially personal matters or things of a metaphysical or religious or spiritual or psychological nature or a common malady of humanity and they use non-biblical terminologies it throws me off it's kind of a curveball because i don't know what to do with it i have this i'm battling with this and sometimes these terms are they're brand new and somebody just made it up and it's not self-revealing it's not self-evident add is not self-evident because you've got to figure out well what does the acronym stand for sometimes you forget uh One of those terms is OCD. People say that all the time. OCD, OCD, OCD. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, But it's an acronym for obsessive compulsive behavior. I don't think we should be saying OCD. That's confusing. That's like in the military. You military people use acronyms all the time. You confuse us people by all your acronyms. Um, So that's true of the world's dealings with this issue of depression causes and supposed solution, so let 's get back to biblical terminology here 's a good reminder of why it 's so important. First Corinthians chapter two, starting at verse six. The apostle is talking to the Corinthian Christians as an apostle, as an agent whom the God of the universe speaks through and has spoken through with the spirit of God. Paul brought supernatural truth on every issue that they needed to hear and Paul is reminding them of that and Paul's reminding them how he communicated it. What the actual medium or vehicle of truth was that brought it to their mind. The very terminology, words and phrases and syntax and sentences and vocabulary that he actually used was chosen by God. It was very specific. It was biblical. We need to keep it that way and shy away from the so-called wisdom and words and vocabulary and lexicon of the unbelieving world. That's what this whole passage is about. Spiritual truth. He's talking about spiritual truths. The greatest spiritual truth he's talking about at verse 6 to the end of the chapter is the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the God-man who came into the world, lived a sinless life, willingly went to the cross, got punished on the cross, executed through crucifixion, and for half a day absorbed the wrath of Almighty God in heaven the Father on behalf of sinners as their substitute, in fulfillment of Scripture, died, was buried, the third day rose Himself from the grave, declared that He was the Messiah and the only Savior of the world, 40 days later went back and ascended into heaven to be with the Father and the Holy Spirit from whom He came and who He had been with, through all eternity that is the christian message that is the gospel and that is the message that the unbelieving world finds absurd and foolish among other things another foolish thing that the world says is absurd is when we say that genesis is true. Genesis 1 through 50 is true. Genesis 1 through 3 is literal. It is historical. Adam was a real guy. He really lived to be 930. Eve was a real woman. God really did make Adam from the dirt. God really did create all things in six days and rested on the seventh, just the way it is described in Genesis. And today, if you say that you believe that, you are a buffoon in the eyes of the world. And unfortunately, in more and more of the Christian and evangelical world, So they consider the things that we have been taught, that we believe, that we stand by, foolishness and unwise. And so that's what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 2. He is reminding the Corinthians that the spiritual truths that have been given to them through divine revelation, through the Apostle Paul and through Scripture, according to the world, are unwise and foolishness, but to God they are precious truths and even the terminology needs to be preserved as God gave it. And so that's why in verse six, he says, yet we, the apostles, Paul and others who speak for God, do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. He's talking about worldly people. But rather, we speak a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. We are giving you truths that didn't originate. In this world, from humanistic thinking, we are giving you truths that came from God in heaven, and that's why the unbelieving world doesn't accept it. They reject the truth. They even reject the very terms we use. Verse 7, but unlike the world that rejects biblical truth, we, the apostles, speak God's wisdom or spiritual heavenly truth in a mystery. In other words, it can't be interpreted by the unbelieving world without the help of the Spirit of God. It's a hidden wisdom in that respect. You need spiritualized to see it and understand it, which God predestined before the ages of glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, that is Jesus. And then we skip down to verse 10, for to us, the apostles, God revealed these spiritual truths through the Holy Spirit of God. For the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, the mind of God. There is only one person who knows the mind of an infinite God, and that is the Spirit of God. Which would also include Jesus as part of the Trinity. Verse 11, so God is communicating eternal divine thoughts that originate with him. He wants to communicate thus that to finite, fallen humans so that we can comprehend and understand it and to do that he does it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God and because Christians have the spirit living in them we are actually able to understand believe comprehend and apply supernatural truths that came from the creator of the universe that is amazing do you know God's thoughts I know God's thoughts that is not arrogant that is a promise of scripture I know what God thinks What the Bible says is what God thinks. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man, which is in him? Isn't that amazing? That is talking about your self-conscious awareness. You're sitting there either sleeping, paying attention to this sermon, letting your mind wander thinking about what a horrible week you had last week, letting your mind wander thinking about your future and what a wonderful week you hope to have this week. And you know what? You're sitting there quietly and nobody knows. It's a secret. I actually think you're paying attention. That's what Paul is saying right here. Verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, of a woman, of a boy, of a girl, except the spirit or their own self-conscious awareness that belongs to them and only them? I don't know what you're thinking. God does. You and God, that's it. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. See, we can't get biblical truth unless God initiated, gave it to us through the agency of the Holy Spirit of God. It's amazing. Verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who is from God, in order that we might know the things freely given to us by God. We, we can know what God wants, we can know what God thinks. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit called illumination. Wonderful biblical doctrine. Verse 13. Well, what things that came from God, Paul? Well, the things that we speak as apostles, that we preached to you. And when we did it, we didn't do it in words taught by human wisdom. Paul's talking about the Greeks that were respected, that were unsaved, in the city of Corinth, who reigned supreme in all of life and in culture and thought life. And they were unbelievers. And they were the heirs of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle but it was an unbelieving, fallen world view. And they had unbelieving, fallen terminology that they used. And phrases and ideas and concepts. Like reincarnation was one of them. And Paul's saying we came and we, we spoke wisely, but we weren't the wise guys like you routinely expected in Corinth, like Plato and Socrates and all those guys that try to mimic them. We were very different drastically different. We weren't like them. Uh, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, in order that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, it's of supernatural origin, but in those taught by the spirit of God, here's the key, combining spiritual thoughts or truth with spiritual words. Spirituals. But that's what he's talking about. The cargo that carries the truth are the actual words used. Hence, my point, it is so important to preserve biblical terminology, biblical words, biblical phrases, along with the ideas and truths that they are packaged by. So, going back to number two, biblical words are vitally important. Number three, there is debate about the definition of depression. I already gave you what I thought was a balanced biblical uh, definition. And we showed that the world can't even agree on a definition. The Bible is the authority. 1 Timothy 4 says have nothing to do with worldly unbelieving myths. And there's a lot of mythology, biblical, I mean, unbiblical thinking that is being promoted and taught regarding this idea of depression and its diagnosis and solution by the world and the so-called authorities. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, have nothing to do with it. That's like thinking about origins and, and evolution. That's a myth. But it reigns supreme. Everybody believes in evolution. Evolution is a fact. No, it's not. It's a myth. Christians have nothing to do with it. First uh, Timothy 6.20 says, have nothing to do with so-called science. So-called science, says the King James. So-called authoritative truth invented by the world. Have nothing to do with it. And we need to apply that to the area of psychology and anthropology and how we assess human ailments. And in the world of medicine, It's not exempt. Number four, there was debate about the cause and the solution of depression. I read the causes that the world says last week that are in all the authoritative medical, psychological, psychiatric journals. Not one of them mentioned sin. Not one of them mentioned a fallen world. Not one of them mentioned the wrath of God. But those are all vital to the core Of what causes depression, and then I listed others, and I wrote them down for you there, all the way up through uh, letter F. There is debate about the cause and solution of depression. So, moving on from the causes, by the way, those causes can overlap. Some of those causes have to do with sin. Some causes don't have anything to do with sin. For in the case of Jesus, Jesus came down and he lived in the fallen world. He got tired. He got hungry. He got sleepy. He got lonely. He got depressed. And never was his depression related to sin. It had to do with living willingly in a fallen world and being subjected to the curse of this earth. So is depression sinful? Depends. Can be, and sometimes it's not. Number five. This is a profound truth. All people get depression. It seems so simple. Uh, Go to 1 Corinthians 10.13. I remember the first time I was a brand new Christian, freshman year in college. I had been saved maybe two months. So I was really new to the Christian experience. I actually believed that once you became a Christian, that everything just got better and you wouldn't have problems in life. I also really believed that once you became a Christian, you wouldn't sin anymore. And then I quickly found out within a month that that was not true. Or maybe I wasn't saved. So I went into a mini-depression, thinking, wow, I'm not a Christian, I've lost my salvation, this is depressing, and I was battling. Battling for weeks. Then I sat down in the cafeteria, this was at Westmont College, eating my Cheerios, and I had made a recent friend, his name was Nels, N-E-L-S. Cool name, weird name, Nels. Nice guy, junior in college at Westmont College. Um, And we're talking, and he he sensed very quickly that I was depressed and discouraged. Then he heard my testimony, and he heard, oh, man, this guy's a newbie. He didn't know anything. Uh, So he started encouraging me from Scripture. And he quoted from memory 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I will never forget it. And then he proceeded to give about a 14-minute sermonette while I ate my Cheerios. And I was incredibly encouraged. My eyes were open. It's like the scales... Fell off. New truth. Never heard it before. Uh, And it says, here's what he quoted. Cliff, you're in a trial. God loves you. You haven't lost your salvation. You're in a trial. Trials are common in life. Everybody goes through trials. And here's what Scripture says about it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted... Beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also in order that you may be able to endure it. And then he went on to explain it for, like I said, 10 to 15 minutes. And Jesus said, know the truth and you shall be free. And man, I was free that day. So free and so liberated that it became an indelible memory in my mind 25 years later. Great truth. So let's meditate on this wonderful passage of truth and unpack it quickly because it's at the heart of really understanding depression, understanding trials that subject us to depression and also what the solution is, what God's role is when we're dealing with depression and trials. And is there any hope? This is a great promise from God. Nels, by the way, Nels, his dad was named Ray. Ray Ortland. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Ray Ortland, just a wonderful man of God and preacher for years. And his and his dad, Ray Ortland Sr., another wonderful man of God, and their grandma and Ortland, just great Christian people who blessed many over the years. Uh, so look at it. No temptation. The word temptation is used a couple of times, plus uh, the verb tempted in this verse. Uh, temptation from Scripture. In this case, uh, it can be a test. It can be a trial. Um, the idea here is trial, trial of life. Usually you end up in depression. When I talk to people about depression, oh, I had depression, I'm in depression. That's the end result of a process. So usually when I talk to somebody who has depression, it took them a while to get there and they, they usually are in the midst of a trial. A trial brought them to the point of depression. And that's what 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about. No temptation, you can literally put trial. Because it is talking about the trials of life. And it could be a trial uh, that isn't directly related to sin, but any trial can subject sinful humans to sin, hard times and all that. So legitimately so, it is called a temptation, but also a legitimate translation is trial. No trial has overtaken you. How did you get into this depression? Well, here's what happened and here's what happened and here's what happened. Oh, it sounds like you had a bunch of trials in your life and some serious trials. Trials and they happen rapid fire and wow. Yeah, I can see why you're in the spiraling hole that you are. You got here through trials. That's why this verse is relevant. No trial. I love the fact that this is a promise. This is de facto truth. The worldview that reigns supreme today in America is relativism. And at the heart of its doctrine is that we cannot know anything with certainty. We can't know truth with certainty. Which is the exact opposite of what this verse is saying. It is saying emphatically to the believer, to the Christian, you can know this. This is a promise of God. You can stand on it. You can count it or count on it. This is true. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you. Personalize it. Put your name in there. No trial has overtaken you, McManus. But such as is common to man, or but such as is common to the rest of humanity. That's what it means. Wow, what a perspective to have when you're facing trials. Because it is easy to throw self-pity parties, isn't it? We've all done it. Some of us are experts at it. Oh, woe is me. The trial I'm going through has never been experienced by anybody in the history of the universe. That's what it feels like, isn't it, sometimes when we're in the trial. This truth counters that idea, undermines that idea, exposes that idea for what it is, a falsehood that is misleading, that is deceptive, that gets our thinking off track. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to get your thinking off. We're going this way spiritually towards God, towards Jesus, towards his glory in terms of our thinking. And Satan wants to, oops, get us off the railroad, off the track. Then we go this way, the wrong way, away from God, fulfillment and everything else God once for His glory, so our thinking is so important. No trial has overtaken you, McManus, but such is common to everybody else. So when you get down to what the specific trial is in your life, the specific hardship, regardless of how severe, I guarantee you there is somebody currently living, probably even in your circle that you know, or at least in the history of planet Earth, that also had that same problem. And I bet you I could find an example of it in Scripture. And... I bet you, although I'm not a betting man, that there's an example of somebody in the Bible who had it worse than you. And I will also bet, although I'm not a betting man, as I search the Scriptures and find somebody who had the same trial that you did, that was more severe than yours, that they overcame it by virtue of their belief in the promises of God. I don't know about you, but to me, that's good, that's a, that's good news and an amen if you're a Christian. Right? Thank you. No trial has overtaken you, McManus, but such is common to everybody else. Let's stop there. A couple of sub points on that profound truth. In light of the first half of verse 13, here are some corollary principles to take away and add to your Christian worldview and add to your daily living and add to your paradigm of how you think through life and all your trials and all your problems and all the high points and all the valleys. So this becomes a permanent part of your thinking as it did with me with Nell's Orland 25 years ago as they ate my Cheerios. Subpoints of this truth. No trial has overtaken you that is not common to everybody else. Point is, your problem is not unique. Your problem is not unique. You know, it's very dangerous when you're counseling people on these very serious, intimate, personal, sensitive matters and they tell their whole story and then as the biblical counselor you come out and you read first corinthians 3 10 13 and then you say to them your problem is not unique (laughs) sometimes they don't like that you're not a very sympathetic pastor i'm not adding to their pity party i have sympathy but i'm not trying to be cold and callous i'm just i did not write the verse this came from god's mind i'm just telling you what it says I rejoiced when I heard that verse back uh, when I had my problem. So that's that's the corollary truth. Your problem is not unique. Another one. Your problem is common. I hear this all the time. You can have a club. Go find friends. But there's commonality to it. There are others who you can rub shoulders with. The beauty of that is you can go to other people who have been down that road and get counsel and encouragement from them. They've been there. They know. what paul said in first Corinthians 1 okay what else in light of this truth uh your trial or your problem is not the most extreme that has ever happened or your current example is not the worst case scenario that's supposed to be good news i'm not trying to minimize your problem but it's not the worst case i've ever heard it's probably not the worst case you've ever been through in your life or here's a caution it may not be the worst it'll ever get in your life either But I know for a fact, whatever your problem is, it's not worse than what I can find in Scripture with Jesus and Job alone. And then one more in light of this verse. Regardless of your problem, the situation is not hopeless. Isn't that cool? Because of what I know from Scripture, and if you are indeed a Christian and a believer and have the Spirit of God living in you, your circumstances, your situation, your depression, regardless of how severe and terrible it is, your situation is not hopeless. There is hope. There is a prospective solution for overcoming this. And many times we're in a trial or depression we don't think there is, do we? We can't see the hope. We can't see the light. That's why we need to be encouraged by other people with biblical truth so that we can think on that and be liberated with that great truth let 's go on to the second part of the verse, so no trial is overtaking you McManus in in your miserable depression, but such is common to everybody else. Other people deal with those issues, some people deal with them more severely than you ever have, and there's people in the Bible who had it worse than you did, and they dealt with it the right way and not in a sinful manner. Second part of the verse, and huge God is. Faithful. Okay, part of the solution of depression has to be God. You won't read that in the authoritative, psychological, psychiatric, anthropological journals that you pull up on the web. They're not going to say God is the solution. It's the triune God. It's the biblical God. So the first thing that a Christian... So it acknowledges that we have trials... And the first thing regarding a solution has to do with God, not us. So we don't look inward, we look outward and upward to Almighty God, our Creator, our Judge, our Savior. That's where the solution begins. It's outside of ourselves. God who's sovereign, who knows all things, who holds all things in the palm of His hand, who's a glorious, merciful, gracious Savior and God is faithful. He's faithful to who? He is consistent. He is committed to His Word. He's committed to the promises He's made to every Christian. He will follow through on it. He will never abandon you or His promises as the child of God. He's faithful to you if you're a Christian. If you're not a believer, you can't put that in there. He's talking to Christians and those who know Jesus Christ personally. So if you are a Christian today, bona fide, born again, know Jesus personally, and you are in the midst of depression today, here's a word from God to you. God is faithful. In the midst of your depression, God is faithful. He will follow through. He needs to be your foundation, your rock. It starts with Him. Forget the pity party. There's no solution there. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried or put in situations that make you depressed or bring hardships in your life. God is not. There's another promise. He is not going to allow you to be tempted or put in a trial beyond what you are able, beyond what you're able to bear, beyond what you're able to endure as a Christian. Now, it takes faith to believe that phrase. Because I've, I have been in the midst of trials myself, have gone back to the Nell's Cheerio verse and read it and really struggled and stumbled over the middle part. God isn't going to allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able. I'm like, wow, I don't think I'm able. I haven't been able. Uh, I'm missing something here. But it's got to be true. It's God's work. So I must be missing something. That's the key. I am missing something. It's a promise. God is not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In your trial, in your situation, in whatever it is that brought on your onset of depression. So that's a what is what is Paul doing? What is God doing to the person in a trial? What is God doing to the person who is depressed? He is first and foremost, he's providing hope. I want to add to the definition of depression. And this is really reserved for next week or the week after that. Part of the definition, when you define a term, it's very helpful to define what it is not. So the opposite of depression is joy. That's key. There are other things that are the opposite thereof, but absolutely key to it, the opposite of depression is joy. I'm not talking about fleeting happiness. I'm talking about true biblical spirit-bred joy. In the life of a Christian, that can be squelched. And that is always at the heart of a diagnosis of a Christian who is battling depression. Does the Bible have anything to say about joy? You said? Yes, thank you. Authoritatively, exhaustively, practically, we'll get to it. So God is faithful, McManus. Even in the midst of your, by the way, it's present tense. God is faithful. He continues to be faithful. He will always be faithful. It's not God used to be faithful. God was faithful in Moses' day when he did all those cool miracles. God was faithful and used to be in the days of the apostles with all those cool miracles. God was faithful with Elijah and all those. No, it's God is faithful. The same God that did all those miracles. The same God that delivered. That is the same God today that you know personally through Jesus Christ as a Christian. With the same power God is faithful he will not allow you to go through any trial so whatever trial you're in life right now whether it is a sickness and some of those diseases can be terminal fatal whether it has to do with the season of life you're in right now you're single and you want to be married and you can spin into a mindset of discouragement distress and depression You're a college student. Need I say more? I think about college and how distressing that was and how difficult it was in terms of just the constant responsibilities you have in terms of academia and getting everything done and passing and getting through and surviving and juggling your very busy social schedule. But anyway. Or maybe you're having a trial right now as a parent dealing with a kid. It's very difficult. So just about every one of us is in a trial. That's the life. That's the lot of every person on planet Earth. But God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted or be in a a trial beyond what you're able. It might be a wrestling match. It might make you cry. It might weigh you down. And it might do it for weeks and weeks. Sometimes it happens years. But God, He knows what He's doing. He knows your constitution. He knows your temperament. He knows your mindset. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your situation. He knows your environment. He knows all of that. He is in absolute perfect control. So we got to remember that God knows what He's doing. I'm not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to deal with. I think of people who have had to deal with death, and I think of their situations like, "Wow, how did?" I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could go through with that. I think of Pastor Steve Fernandez, who died of cancer, or my good friend recently, and I don't know if I could go through with that the way that he did. But you know what? He couldn't go through it because he wasn't able. He was a man of feet of clay and he was a sinner. And God intervened at that moment and gave them the grace, the supernatural grace to fulfill this promise, to allow Steve, his family, and his church to go through that trial by the grace of God. So you're not going to go through it. So no trial is unique. Uh, God knows what he's doing. He's going to be faithful Uh, God is still on the throne. He's going to see you through it. It's going to be painful. God's got a purpose. He's probably trying to uh, grow you. He's probably trying to... There's a lot of things God could be doing we don't know. But the promise is God is with you. He is faithful. He is constant. He is in charge. Lay it in His lap. Don't try to figure it out. Beyond what you're able to But here's another promise. With the temptation. In other words, while you're going through this trial that has brought you into temptation, there is something to do or think about in the midst of this trial. Well, what do I do? Well, at a minimum, the biblical counselor can say, well, here's what you do. You think on this truth. I can't help you with parenting your child. I can't help you with uh, your cancer, your terminal disease. I can't help you with uh, your loss of job and your financial hardships. I can't help you... I mean, in the ultimate sense. But I can't help you by reminding you, because you're a Christian, God loves you. He loves you more than anybody in the world does in Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He knows about this trial. This trial has limits. And the limits are for your good and your safety. It's going to be hard, but he's going to see you through it. That's what I can tell them. But with with this trial, as long as it goes on, as long as it endures, here's the light at the end of the tunnel. God will provide the way of escape. God will provide the way out. There will be an exit that leads to glory or bliss or at least overcoming that trial or that depression. And that glory or that bliss might be that finally somebody asked you out on a date and you got married. Or that glory and bliss might be that one of your kids finally graduated and moved out of the house. Yippee! Amen! Or it could be that God provided you with a job after a long period of time. I mean, it's just so many scenarios. Or it could be that after living in this fallen world and getting saved and being afflicted with a disease that was terminal. You died as a Christian. And the moment you breathed your last in this life, you were catapult into the glories of heaven and the immediate presence of your blessed Savior. That is the way of escape, even in the worst case scenario. So what is required to see this promise and fulfill it? Patience, supernatural patience that only comes from the Spirit of God. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Patience. Prayer. A right view of God. Going to Him first. Pleading with Him. Depending upon Him. Leaning on Him. Praying to Him. Waiting on Him. Going to His Word that feeds your soul. Going to His Word that corrects our thinking. That complicates matters and makes things worse when we're in the midst of depression. We need our thinking leached, corrected, refreshed. But with the temptation of the trial, McManus, God will provide the way of escape. One way to define your life in your autobiography or your biography is just start listing all the the trials you've had in your life. That makes a story in and of itself, right? And as the Christian, it's all the trials you had in your life and what God did to intervene and how he made a way of escape. And in hindsight, as you look back and see what God did, what God was doing, how you were refined, how you grew, how God was glorified. So there is that way of escape. What is the way of escape practically at the end of the verse? He says, uh, well, that way of escape in order that you may be able to endure it. In other words, God doesn't want to just set you free from the trial. He wants to see you through the trial. He wants to walk you by the hand through the trial. He wants to walk you by the hand through the, whatever brought you into the point of depression and see you through it. Not go around it, not evade it, not minimize it, not dismiss it, not ignore it. Not numb it with alcohol or drugs or cocaine. Did you know that Sigmund Freud was a, a cocaine addict? He was. He was an atheist, cocaine addict. As a matter of fact, early on in his studies as a psychiatrist and psychologist, he recommended cocaine for everybody. So Eric Clapton is not original when he said cocaine. That was Sigmund Freud. And after decades, people started getting a little suspicious with Freud. I don't know about this cocaine thing. Says, oh, man, it makes you feel good. I don't have problems. I'm not depressed. Now we know why. True story. But that's not the solution. Not man-made solutions or worldly solutions. The promise of God. God wants to see you through it. So right now, Christian, if you're in battling depression or if you're in the midst of a trial, lean on this verse, it's truth. Surround yourself with others who believe it to encourage you. Before we close, I want to read a couple of uh, case studies. Real life case studies very quickly of people who had depression. How they got into the state of depression, how they overcame it, or did they come out of it. First one is, let's go to Naomi quickly, the beginning of your Bible after the book of Judges in that very small book called Ruth. So you got the first five books. Math, uh, sorry, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you've got Judges right after that, chapter 21. Then you've got Ruth, chapter 1. While you're turning to Ruth. Okay, so Ruth lived. She was a woman of God. A Jewish woman of faith who lived during the time of the Judges around 1300 B.C. So about 100 plus years after Moses and a couple hundred years before King David. Jewish woman, married a Jewish man. They lived in Bethlehem. They lived there during a time that there was a famine in the land. So Ruth's husband, Elimelech, Said, honey, we're gonna leave Bethlehem, and I hear that there's not a famine across the Jordan River over there in that evil, wicked town called Moab. So let's go there. We're taught where God told us not to go in Deuteronomy 26, because they have food over there. So they did. Uh, they brought their two sons with them. Uh, the two sons were uh, Malon, verse two, and Chilion. So Ruth, hubby, two sons, go into Moab. They stay there, find their food. Uh, Verse 3, Elimelech, the head of the home, the patriarch, the husband of Ruth, while in Moab, he died. And it sounds kind of like it was a sudden death. We don't know why. And Naomi, who loved her husband, he was a fellow believer, they were one flesh, suddenly died in a foreign land. A cursed foreign land. Talk about panic mode. My protector, my provider, my lover has died and I'm gone. So here is Ruth, pretty much forsaken, abandoned abandoned in a foreign land. And she is now, because of the sudden death of her husband, she is grief stricken. She went into deep depression. For years, as a result of her husband's death, how do I know? Because that's what the story goes on to tell us. Very explicitly in the Hebrew words that are used. She became bitter in light of her loss that her husband died. She became, at least for a short time, mad at God. How do I know? Because that's what the story says. She never abandoned her faith in God. But it was a wrestling match in her mind. This bitterness, loneliness went on for ten years in the land of Moab. And it picks up the story at verse 3. And she was left there with her two sons. They took for themselves. So so the two boys uh, marry two Moabite women, which they weren't supposed to do as Jewish men. One of the woman's name is not Oprah, but Orpah, which was supposed to be Oprah's name. And the other son married a woman named Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth that was raised worshiping idols and a false god, Chemosh, and who knows what else. And Baal and everything else with it. As a pagan. Jewish man marries Ruth the pagan. Ruth lives with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her hubby for ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. Ruth's husband died and Ruth's uh, sister-in-law's husband died The two sons of Naomi died. So now there is Ruth in Moab, ten years without a husband, and now her two beloved sons instantly die. We don't know why. Then she goes into more grief, more depression. Ten years. How long has your depression been lasting? So there she is. She just feels, wow, I don't have anything left. Verse six, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, the Jews and giving them food. So Naomi decides, you know what? There's food back in Bethlehem. I'm going home. I'm leaving. Uh, So she departed from that place and her two daughters-in-law went with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law on the way, okay, you know what, Ruth? I mean, uh, yeah, Ruth, go back to your home in Moab. I'm going back across the Jordan. I'm going back to Bethlehem as a Jew. And said that to her other daughter-in-law. And she said at the end of verse 8, May the Lord, may Yahweh, my God, who I was bitter at and mad at, yet still have faith in, may Yahweh, my God, who allowed this trial to happen, deal kindly with you, Ruth, as you have dealt kindly with your husbands and with each other and with me. Verse 9, may Yahweh grant that you find rest, peace, a lack of depression and joy, like I am currently having right now. It's her prayer. This is awesome. At least Ruth hasn't, is not having a self-pity party. She's being proactive. Getting your mind on her relationship with Yahweh, thinking how great Yahweh is, thinking about what God can do, and wishing that would be true of others. Each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they all wept. And then the uh, daughters-in-law said to Naomi, no, but we will surely return with you. We love you. You're a great mother-in-law. Talk God does miracles. You're a great mother-in-law. No, just kidding. Uh, verse 11. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go home with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they uh, may be your husbands? Return my daughters. I'm too old. I'm not going to have any children. So don't wait around for me if you're thinking you're going to hu- uh, marry other sons that I have. So just go home. Verse 13, uh, would you therefore wait until they grow old? Would you therefore refrain from marriage? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. It is harder for me. My lot, in it is more. Now she's having a little bit of a pity party. My life is harder than yours because my husband died and I'm too old to get remarried. Yeah, your husband's died. You'll get over it. and You'll probably meet some new guy and forget about the first one. That's what she's saying. This is kind of cold and callous and short-sighted. I got it harder than you do. No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. God's my enemy. Still a woman of faith. Still believes in Yahweh. Verse 14, And they lifted up their voices, wept again. Uh, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Ruth clung to her. Ruth was not going to let go. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Hey, Ruth, leave me alone. Go. Go back with your sister. Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, Naomi, or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. For uh, your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, Ruth became a believer. She abandoned Chemosh and Baal and the idols and the false god. And she got to know the true God, Yahweh, through the evangelist, Naomi. And she came to embrace the true God of the universe in Scripture. His name was Yahweh. Ruth was now a believer. Verse 17, where you die, Naomi, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh, now her God, do to me and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. Wow. She is committed. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi said to Ruth, uh, no more, and she let her come back to Bethlehem with her. Verse 19, so now you got Ruth and Naomi traveling 50 miles back to their hometown in Bethlehem across the Jordan River, and when they get to Bethlehem, it creates a stir in the neighborhood, so they both went back to Bethlehem and it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred. So news travels fast in a small town and it did here. So people were realizing, whoa, who are these people? Who are these strangers? Who are these ladies coming across the Jordan from Moab? Wait a minute, that looks like a Moabitess. But wait a minute, that lady looks familiar. Whoa, wait a minute, isn't that Naomi? And it is. And so the hubbub is out on the street and everybody hears about it and everybody's wondering what in the world, where's she been? She's back, what's going on? Uh, where's her husband? So it was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? Now, Naomi's name in Hebrew means pleasantness, sweetness, the one who has delight. Isn't this the woman who has delight? Isn't this the sweet one and the one who has sweetness of life? And they began saying that publicly. Naomi heard of it, and she actually got she got angry. Quit calling me by that name. Don't call me sweetness. Don't call me pleasantness. It is no longer true of me. Verse 20. Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That is a Hebrew word and that's the Hebrew pronunciation. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. Call me despised. Because that's what I am. For the Almighty. Now she uses a different name for God. She doesn't use the personal name of God here. But it's Shaddai. It's not Yahweh. It's kind of, uh, yeah, just a different nuance in God's name and His character and what He does. I am bitter. I have been made bitter. For the Almighty God has dealt bitterly with me. She's depressed and she has been for ten years. Verse 22. Verse so Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess. So just using, uh, closing with Naomi, who battled in a very real way with depression for almost 10 years. It's good to examine her life. She remained a believer. As a matter of fact, the good news at the end of the story is that God provides for Ruth, and Naomi sees what God is doing, and I think restores Naomi. in in the long run, removes her bitterness, removes her depression. She finds solace in the plan of God. But it was a real battle and depression that she went through. And if you were to examine her and ask, well, what, what caused Naomi's depression? Was her depression sinful? I would say it depends. Some of the ways that Naomi responded were sinful. Some of the ways she responded, no doubt, were good because she still retained a faith in Yahweh. Some of the issues that caused her depression just had to do with the hardships of life and dealing with death in your immediate family and someone you love and lost. And that's how that word 15 times in the Old Testament, Mara is used. It is used 11 different ways to explain bitterness. And not all of them are sinful. That's how complex bitterness or depression can be so we thank god for the sufficiency of his word and this we cling on to first corinthians 10 13 with that let's go ahead and pray father we thank you for our time together time in the word thank you for the f- sufficiency of scripture supernatural truth the indwelling holy spirit our teacher and god that you you call yourself a god of hope we we rest on that great truth today we thank you we give you the glory in christ's name amen